0: But when they went back to the Soviet Union, they were taken back on trains, you know, and then they were troops. They were live troops and their job was to help with the harvest. And then they came back and re-entered their unit. So not only were these people lower manning these units, but they also had a lot of these guys back doing something totally different.
1: Listening to the live drop, I'm Mark Valley. My guest is Stephen Hoyt. He's a professor at the University of Maryland, former analyst for the USMLM United States Military Liaison Mission in Berlin. USMLM in cooperation with British and French allies were the only observers with daily access behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. Mission reports provided not only a realistic picture of the Soviet Army, but a window into East German society. Stephen talks about the origins, singularity, and legacy of USMLM, along with the Mission Potsdam Conference he's organized, June 20th through 22nd of this year, 2019, sponsored by the University of Maryland and hosted by the Potsdam Museum. Notable speakers will discuss this unique human organization from a variety of perspectives. Begin transmission
0: now. Well, it was founded um, in 1947, actually, well, USMLM was founded in April of 47, actually around this day. Um, in 1947, it was originally supposed to be a link liaison, as the name suggests, between the Soviet Army commander and the USAR, United States Army Europe commander. And <clears throat> it was supposed to, you know, provide information to each commander so that cause since they were wartime allies, um, they would each know what the other was doing, more or less, and they'd be on relatively friendly terms. Uh, there was a British mission. The first one, the Americans hesitated. There was an agreement late 44, 45, and then with the beginning of the so-called Cold War, the Americans started balking at it. The British were the first to found a mission, and then the French, and then the Americans were the last.
1: It was started as a what would you call that? Just like a kind of a peacekeeping force or a peacekeeping
0: No, nothing. I mean, these are some of these are, you know, modern political science terms that really weren't used then, to be honest with you. And uh, well, at least I, they weren't used as far as I know. It basically was started as, you know, a link between the two commanders in chief um, of each res- of the respective armies. Occupation wasn't the country. There was no country. It was There were occupation sectors. You know, Americans, French and British were in East Germany, what became East Germany. The Soviets were in what became West Germany. So there was no French Soviet mission tours in East Germany because the Soviet army was there.
1: There were mission tours that were in East Berlin.
0: No, they had nothing to do with us. I, they have nothing to do with us whatsoever. Zero. We never had anything to do with East Berlin whatsoever.
1: Like, who were your typical um, tour operators or your analysts or the chain of command in the uh, USMLM? Like, it was
0: always commanded other than one or two times, maybe even once by a full, an 06 colonel army. At its founding, the Air Force didn't exist. The Air Force came into existence in September 47. The USMLM in um, April of 47. So, you know, the the McCarran Act, NSA, CIA, and the Air Force were born in September of 47. So technically, the Air Force was not involved in the chain of command at all. So at any given time, there were 10 Allied missions, ALML, Allied Liaison Missions. And there were, at any given time, 10 of them operating in East Germany.
1: And these were all uh, via... I don't know what the proper terms are. I want to make it sound official. Vehicle-borne tours, or yeah, and people, to, in and people in uniform in, in vehicles. Were they allowed to get out of the vehicles and walk around?
0: Yeah, they sleep in the field or you know hotel or do whatever they want, more or less. But there were areas in all sectors, equivalent percentage areas, where the tours weren't supposed to go. They were called permanent restricted areas (PRAs), and then there were temporary restricted areas, which were TRAs, that were issued for exercises to keep everybody out of the way.
1: And what was the, what was the equipment?
0: Well, I mean, basically a car and, you know, off-the-shelf technology cameras, um, recording equipment, telephoto lenses, you know, things that people taking pictures of stuff would want.
1: They were unarmed.
0: Unarmed, yeah. Never, ever, ever armed, other than a butter knife to, you know, spread something on a roll. Uh,
1: I mean, in, in Berlin, and we can talk about this a little bit later, I wanted to hear about the the intelligence environment and community in Berlin and who was there, but... I think you mentioned saying that a lot of the raw information was coming from the missions and from the allies as well. I mean, if there are 10 cars driving around a day, that's a lot of information that's going to be processed. Was this originally foreseen as an intelligence gathering?
0: I don't think so. I, I I can't, you know, it's hard to answer that. I doubt it. I don't think it was. I don't think anybody had a clue of what the future was going to be. And certainly when they, I mean everybody was aware the Soviet Union was probably not the greatest of all friends, and everybody no one should forget that the u s sent troops to the Soviet Union stuck their nose in their revolution you know their civil war not exactly well welcomed by by a lot of Russians um well, some did some didn't <laughs> but Stalin had you know remembered that and he was not overjoyed so even though the, you know they had formal Zhukov and Eisenhower had good relations personally, but I don't think Stalin and Others, Roosevelt and company, had or Truman real great relations. The players, the main players were the Soviet Union and the United States in the Cold War. And I mean, the Brits and the French, certainly as the, the missions were just as value, valuable contributors as we were. But the big conflict was between the two big places. So, you know, the suspicions were early. I, so I don't know the answer. I, I don't think intelligence gathering was considered. I don't think that model of intelligence gathering had even existed.
1: They just adapted. So, where did the actual mission, the idea for having these missions come from?
0: I mean, it came out of a conference in 1944 in Britain. And, um, you know, some, I think it was a Brit, I don't know who the Brit was, but he basically said it would be great if we had, you know, some liaison activities after the war once things settled down. And, you know, their main concern was stopping the Germans. So, they, I I assume they thought it would help provide information on, you know, the fact that Germany wasn't starting up again. You know, I mean, I still need to, there's still, I haven't researched all everything from the early days. Someone else is doing that. Well, it did. It came out of what, what they called the London, you know, it was a London conference. I mean, the London conference in 1944, that's for sure. The idea came out of that. And so then the idea was passed on to, I guess when Eisenhower and Zhukov got along so well, everybody thought, well, you know, maybe it's not such a bad idea. That folks back in Washington were hesitant. And, you know, they weren't sure who should USML be subordinate to. I mean, you know, who is, whose is it, you know, does it belong to the joint chiefs of staff? Does it belong? DIA didn't exist then. CIA didn't exist. Who did it report to state department? Uh, what the heck are they supposed to do? It, it formed as they went along, you know?
1: So it sounds like it was very much, I was very much, whoever was in charge of the, not necessarily, the mission. I mean, it's it's crazy because the mission has like three different meanings in Berlin, right? There's the mission, which is like the consulate. Then there's the U.S. military liaison mission, and then there's obviously tasks and targets and things. But it seems like it seems like uh, U.S. MLM that the the culture was was really dictated by whoever was commanding it at that time.
0: Culture was pretty fixed. I mean, you know, they went out on tour, they photographed things, they looked whether the troops in the early days are they concentrating by the border. You know, are they moving around? Where out. What's the disposition? It's pretty fixed. You know, it's, it's not, I mean, you don't have to be very clever to figure out, to, to see that there's 700 tanks in one place that weren't there the day before. So, and the other thing is, we were just coincidentally in Berlin. You know, we had absolutely, other than material support and housing and all that stuff, you know, and the commissary, and we had nothing to do with anybody else at all. Zero and they had nothing to say to us or about, or about us, really. Well, they probably had plenty to say about us. They, they, they never, they couldn't. we were not in anybody's chain of command. So they couldn't just walk into our building. You know, they couldn't just say, hey, we want to go in there and, like they could in the Berlin Brigade and somewhere else. And,
1: Do you use any of the facilities in the American sector in, in Berlin?
0: Yeah, of course. You know, use car wash, Sure. No that that we washed our vehicles, you know that our vehicles were maintained at the motor pools of andrews we, we we could wash them down there, but we couldn't fix the vehicles if something broke and we couldn't you know we didn't have a lift or anything else, so they had to go over to Andrews they put skid plates on it, you know they did all sorts of they modified it every vehicle that was had was modified, so, so
1: these were like v8s what were the Ford galaxies, I forget what kind of cars they were.
0: Oh, they're all different. Oh, different times. There were Broncos. There were Ford Galaxies. There were a number of different. Late, the latest one was this, this, a Mercedes Wagon, You know that kind of resembled an, an UAZ, which was a Soviet Jeep. It varied with the times. There were Opel Senators and cars that didn't. Well, Ford Galaxy looked out of place. You know relative to Turbans and Wartburgs.
1: American muscle cars in the 70s roaring across the East German countryside with...
0: Yeah, well, I mean, they weren't really, but they were... I mean, you couldn't... You didn't want too much power if it was a two-wheel, if it was a normal sedan because you could—you get stuck. What are you going to do? You know, we converted a four-wheel, the Broncos, but you had to get out and shift the You had to turn the hub. You couldn't shift in the four-wheel drive. You had to turn the hub. And East German roads are pretty horrible. You know, they're miserable. And the tr- tank trails the Soviets traveled in they were made for wheeled vehicles or, you know, heavy duty eight wheel drive uh, troop carriers. So it wasn't like you could just go whizzing down a, a wooded tank trail in a Galaxy 500. You know?
1: and the roads were narrow in East Germany, uh, West Germany, I know, at least especially in villages and things.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was actually pretty dangerous. So, you know, it was really the skill of the, NT- the tour NCOs who um, were less happened than could have potentially happened. Potential for accidents and, and more than happened was, was pretty great.
1: You said it was really between the Americans and the Soviets and...
0: I mean, the, the other missions did just as much as we did. They just did things in a different way. But I mean, the fact is the Cold War was really dictated by the two big players, you know.
1: So the missions were to, to look at the GSFG, to watch the group of Soviet forces Germany. Any other collection going on? Like, were you, were you allowed to watch or observe any of the East German units?
0: Yeah, but no one cared. It was not a priority. You know, like I said, the, the big guys were the Soviet Union and the... United States. So no one really gave a hoot about the East Germans. I mean, we did cover them. We had information on them, but it wasn't that big a deal. And if you look at later on at DIA, there's like a half a person dealing with, you know, East Germany, Poland, the whole, thrown them all together. Then there were like 15 or 20 dealing with the Soviet Union or Soviet army. So I mean, it was obvious that no one really cared that much. And the Germans, the BND, you know, their intelligence folks were focused on the East German army.
1: So what was, if you can say, what was some of the most like valuable information that you got that came from these tours?
0: Well, I actually, I think the most valuable, which was instructive of the so-called intelligence cycle, was that because people don't have to believe it, what you give them, if it doesn't fit what their previous belief system was, we found out that they were at a very low level, manning level, the height and, you know, the... Um, the combat troops, combat units, were at 55 percent manned at 55 percent, or in other words, 45 percent of the troops weren't there. So when people looked at the manning levels, what they saw was the peacetime, and it looked like, well, they're at 100 percent. But peacetime is not wartime, and so they had two manning levels: one was wartime, one was peacetime. And the wartime, they were at almost basically at half half their manning levels for wartime strength, meaning they couldn't have had offensive intentions. I mean, it would have been. I suppose anybody could, you know, but by doctrine, they wouldn't attack somebody if they were half as strong as they wanted to be. Neither would we. I mean, who would, you know, why would you do that? How do you have an enemy when you only, you know, the enemy is not even half what you thought it was. You know, I mean, what the kind of enemy is, you're not an enemy. You're, you're, you know, basically falling apart. And I don't think they ever were at that strength. I don't think they ever were at, I, I don't, we just found it out. I just don't, I don't think they ever were. Based on everything, I mean, I can, it's not speculation, it's just commentary. If someone could have done something, given how evil they were supposed to be, they would have done it. So you'd have to think, well, if they didn't do it, then they couldn't have done it. Of course, that's not necessarily true, but at least logically makes sense. Because we ascribe to them all these things, yet they never did it. And one reason they didn't do it because they couldn't do it.
1: Did they make attempts like dis disin? What is it called? Disinformatia.
0: Disinformatia. Yeah, I mean, you know, maskirovka disin- yeah,
1: Did they make attempts to look like they were more prepared than they were? Or they were more. They had greater strength than they
0: than they had. Well, I don't think they knew what we knew. That we knew it. I don't think it mattered. I don't know how they would do that. I mean, I'm not sure how they would. Now, the field station folks, when they do a command exercise and it's all basically headsets and talking, they could sound like they have 800,000 people there. I mean, you know, they could make up two divisions. How like would anybody know? They give two guys radios. It looks like a division CPX and, uh, I mean, a division um, command post. How would anybody know? The answer is they wouldn't.
1: So they didn't really make an attempt to to hide their, their strength levels from?
0: I don't think they had any clue that we knew about what their strength level was. Uh,
1: how were the Americans, British, and French? Uh, how did they differ operationally?
0: Well, the British had more people. They had like thirty-two people, I think, uh, author authorized. Each had more in their headquarters because we were in West Berlin. We could have as many as we wanted to. We could have three hundred if we felt like it, but we only were authorized to have a certain number of passes of people in the East on a certain time. So they had three-man tours. They had a tour NCO and then a they had a driver, uh, and then they had an NCO and an officer who were both collecting. So they could do more actual collections. They could have more tours on the road because they have more people. We only had 14. We had the smallest. We we're the biggest country, but we had the smallest mission. We couldn't, um, they, they, we couldn't operate that many um, tours at the same time because we just didn't, didn't have the people.
1: Americans had two-man tours, but were there any women?
0: No, never once in any mission that I know of was there a woman.
1: Were there women analysts?
0: Yeah, but there were no women officers that I ever noted. There were only NCOs, 96 Bravos, admin. Other than that, it was a male operation.
1: Did you guys get, did they get combat pay for being in a dangerous area?
0: They got TDY. No one ever thought it was combat. So they got, And and actually one of the, the chiefs canceled that because he said, that's your normal duty. It's not TDY. And everybody was pissed and hated him and cursed because they liked the money. No, it was TDY, TDY vouchers. You know, you filled them out and, and got your money, whatever the TDY was. And, um, and then in East Germany, yeah, we, we could change without penalty. We, we changed it one to seven or eight, whatever it was.
1: So USM1 has been described as a human t- operation car auto int
0: yeah but people don't forget you get out and wander around at night and do all sorts of stuff
1: were people allowed to I mean you know develop casual contacts and sources
0: no I mean we didn't we it was the French did they had apparently they did that but we never did it was it was out of bounds we didn't run agents no I and mean, we had petty cash to have some local guy shut up give him gum to just to talk to a Soviet more than these Germans if possible but give kids gum show them all we're nice people Give them some candy, but the other stuff. no, we did not try to recruit people.
1: And there was something interesting I was reading about the Soviets. How they worked with the East German farmers. Um, I mean, they would I don't know provide them security.
0: No, not security. They would they would help with the harvest. So so that's the other thing. When you look at readiness, there were Soviet troops who were actually involved in in harvesting crops. I mean, what kind of army wow. is going to invade you and they're out picking potatoes? Feed,
1: to feed themselves.
0: Well, they would take part of it, and they would just help with the. They were sent back to the Soviet Union to help. I mean, is that an army that's going to attack you? That you know, you send back your your recruits to go help with the with the harvest. They literally did this every year.
1: So they did, they traded labor for food, or did, were they actually buying some?
0: Well, it turns out that the, in the East they didn't. They had some they had arrangements where they forced them to accept what they were doing. When they went back to the Soviet Union, they were taken back on trains, you know, and then they were troops. They were live troops, and their job was to help with the harvest. And then they came back and re-entered their unit. So not only were these people lower manning these units, but they also had a lot of these guys back doing something totally different. So how how are they going to attack anybody when when 10% of their unit is back picking potatoes and, and cauliflower?
1: So I wanted to talk about just a quick run through. We don't have to go in too deeply, but I was just wondering if the, if the mission, if USMLM had any effect or impact during like Able Archer.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard so much about that. I, I think it's a fictional thing, actually. I think it was a CPX. Um, ours was CPX. I think they must have known that, but I looked back and tried to remember. I was there then. I don't remember anything going on. So what's CPX? Man Post. Command post exercise, in other words, not troops on the ground, but talking through it.
1: Yeah, I remember we did Reforger in 1988. This was one of those operations where you're kind of moving like these shadow ghost units around, and
0: yeah, yeah, it, it's it's that's a CPX. So you know, basically war games on on a board. Yeah, it
1: was like playing stand up chess in the park,
0: minus the board. You know, with with radios and stuff. And so, to someone listening, like at the at the NSA and all these play- listening places it probably sounded like there's all sorts of people doing all sorts of stuff but you know they weren't <laughs> you know <laughs> there were real ground exercises big ones but they weren't involved in able archer that i know about i mean i don't i asked people and they said they had no idea anybody i know who was there they said they don't have any recollection so if they have no recollection then it must be something that people found somewhere and started to expand on what they found
1: what was the intelligence community what, what was the entire environment in berlin and how and what was the intelligence cycle you were you were you using playfulsburg to confirm
0: no no that wasn't our job we i didn't really care you know we always had debates with them some of the stuff that they claim happened that actually didn't happen in reality it was just talking through things but i mean they were good you know they did a good job it was just different job that's all i mean they did they had different focus than we did um, they weren 't worried about equipment ID. They went by you know the actual Soviet names and stuff, and I mean they knew all this stuff. I mean the transcribers and the people who listened, but you know they were vacuum collectors. they just everything that happened they collected and then they had other operations where they focused on specific things like East German party leadership. but I mean that didn 't concern us. that was of no importance to us whatsoever. It had really nothing to do with us at all. I mean, the intelligence community in berlin was was huge, you know it was just the biggest concentration of intelligence people probably in history was in Berlin. I can't imagine there was a place with more than East and West Berlin and the Cold War.
1: What was that like? I mean, I mean that that awareness that...
0: I mean, I didn't even notice it. To be honest with you, I had no clue these people. Most of them were doing whatever. I suppose, you know, some of them were following each other around, probably like a movie. They got one guy following this guy who's following him, who's following him. I mean, they're like, okay, we know who you are. Well, we know who you are too. I don't, I can't gauge the value of what they gathered certain ones. I can, some of them were just like the flag tours. Is that intelligence collection? I mean, they took pictures of stuff, but they didn't really, they just showed the flag. They just drove around just because they could. And the Soviets did the same thing. They came to our PX in parking lot, you know, and fine, you have a right to be here. Go ahead. I don't care. Go buy a hat. I mean, that's technically collection, but you know, there were a lot of other units of clandestine folks and stuff. And I mean, not the, 3 not CIA, but other ones. They they just didn't do much of anything. They were playing playing funny games, and uh, it's not a reflection of the people. Some of the had nothing to do with the people. Just just no mission really for them. I mean, it just wasn't. They just wanted to have people in case something else happened. I suppose.
1: I imagine people try to break up the USMLM experience into uh, eras or certain time periods when when, when things changed. And-
0: the biggest change was when the KH eleven was launched. The, the satellite, you know, that rendered the mission's function of um, identifying when they as- attacked useless because you could see it from a satellite.
1: What year was that like?
0: December 1976. No one needed the mission for IOH, minutes of Hostility. No one needed uh, guys on the ground to say there's tanks massed at the border when you could see them in a satellite.
1: So it kind of took the pressure off.
0: No one consciously did know this in retrospect only, but it changed. That's when USMLM started the process of becoming an analytic cell as opposed to only a collector. You know, the traditional intelligence selection cycle, someone collects. The person who collects does not analyze it, gives it to somebody else. They do it. We became both collector and analyzer, more or less the first human unit to do that.
1: So let's talk about the conference. You are the president of the USMLM Association. By default. um, This is the... (laughs) By default.
0: They ran (laughs) out of other people who were interested, you know. (laughs) But I mean,
1: you're making a big you're making a big move. You're you're starting this mission this mission Potsdam conference. It's it's an academic gathering. There's like a call for papers. There's yeah, a pretty impressive list of speakers. It's going to be at a university in in Potsdam. Uh, could you tell me how this came about? It
0: actually came about when you know we we used to have every every military unit every high school has reunions. After a while, you've heard all the stories. You know, remember the time you fell in the yeah, oh, well, that was really great. There's it's great to do that. It doesn't help you in terms of, you know, providing information for anybody else who doesn't know about it. So I went to a meeting in Berlin. I was invited to this meeting with a bunch of folks from former East Germany who were all museum curators and historians. And it suddenly just hit me when someone said, well, you know, tell us about what you did, blah, blah, blah. And then they said, oh, it'd be great to know more about this. And I said, geez, you know, why don't we? And as I thought out loud, the representative from the Potsdam Museum said, well, if you want to do it, you can do it at our museum. I said, wait a minute, you'll give us three days at a museum? And he said, sure. I said, deal. So I started planning it, you know, trying to find people. Some have backed out, you know, everybody's ready to go gung ho. And then as the time approaches, oh, I decided I got to go to my grandmother's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I found a bunch of others. I tried to find as many from over here as I could. And basically, what I want to do is try to start something that'll be either yearly or every two years, where there'll be objective presentations on. You know what happened, and and who was involved, and what they did, and in other words, not just war stories.
1: A few years ago, I went to the uh, Nicholson mariotti Memorial in Ludwigslust. That's that's an event that's going to continue.
0: Well, we're gonna we're not gonna support it as often. Family has said it doesn't matter to us anymore if we do it every darn year. I mean, it's a nice gesture, but you know, there's fewer and fewer of us who can go to it. <laughs> you know, be realistic. Now, the Germans are going to support the Ludwigslust one. I mean, it was a, a retired. Sergeant First Class has really done a great job, um, named Fabia Tomofavia, who's done he's done a great job, you know, with continuing and getting the Germans involved. So it, it there'll be something at the Ludwigslust one. But it's it's hard to to get people from far away to go to someplace for a day.
1: Major Nichols is nineteen eighty-five and he was shot by a Soviet sentry and yeah, it was tragic, but he was the only casualty
0: of the mission. Of ours, yeah. The French had a uh chef, which I guess a warrant officer. He was rammed by east germans a year earlier and he was killed a setup purpose it wasn't an accident it was a, an assault so those are the only two who was that by the soviets, or the soviets it was a stasi yeah i mean it was an nva unit east german army unit but it was a stasi and i was there both of these
1: so you were a witness to history
0: i guess i'm a tight you yeah yeah and um, i thought of myself as that but you know
1: Maybe anything else that I, we didn't talk about USMLM that you, you want to get across or people to understand?
0: The fact is, it, it was a unique historical situation. There's no question about that. You know, others can judge. That's what we want to start this having these conferences for. Let others judge whether we were st- extremely valuable or whether it was in our heads. You know? The issue is, and I think that will come out eventually, just because someone produces intelligence doesn't mean anybody reads it and doesn't mean anybody does anything with it. That's really the problem. You know, you give people information and they ignore it. So, I mean, part of it is what are you, what about the future? Is there any possibility of developing anything similar that would allow people to start trusting and looking at so this is the idea of just trust you don't trust you verify that's what they say. We could verify certain things to us to an extent. We have the capability that's a valuable tool. Is that possible to do it somewhere else i don't know i I would think eventually someone's going to talk about that. you know looking forward, what sort of things can we do? What can we learn from this and apply? to something else because it's certainly not being done now (laughs) going the opposite direction
1: i had an idea why don't we have a conference and you can have people from the mission come and talk and give lectures and then we can kind of make up
0: our own minds i like it and then see whether it works
1: sounds like as a former us mlm you want things verified
0: that's the problem with with the real intelligence it, it you know it's just piecing stuff together over and over and over spend hours and hours sitting at a desk and going through stuff and then eh, someone brings something else and you add to it there's no one thing that suddenly cracks open this jar and everything falls out you know and oh there it is i, I mean there may be for some people but nothing i've ever experienced
1: you know what i'd like to you know what i'd like to know is did they what did you do with all the film footage
0: well, if someone has it at DIA or someplace. The trouble is, they don't know. They probably they probably have such a poor retro system, or had one. It's just in a box somewhere in a basement. I don't know if they have the reports in order by number. You know, I know the series of our reports number, but I don't know. Do they have them one, two, three through ten thousand, or do they have them? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that.
1: I just think it would be a really cool film.
0: It would, yeah, no argument.
1: Anyway, uh, Steven, thanks for being on the live drop. Thanks for your time.
0: Thank you. Take care.
1: And that was Stephen Hoyt, who's the president of the USMLM Association. Check the episode summary for links to their website. End of transmission. Hold on, folks. We're just getting another transmission, a bonus interview with Tom Favia. Tom was a Uh, Tour NCO with USMLM in Berlin in the years 1988, I think 1983, but we're going to find out. He was plucked out of the 11th ACR in the Fulda Gap in the middle of the Cold War and asked to drive the tour officers around East Germany, um, the only group that had daily access to East Germany.
2: And um, we're going to hear from him now. Begin transmission. Uh, So, uh, you know, we were really a two-man recon team. The officer knew that the NCO was responsible for the security vehicle, driving, and also we had to call out the kit while we were driving. So we had, you know, multitasking uh, of activities uh, the NCOs were responsible for. And, you know, I will tell you that we got very, very little sleep during the tours. You know, the lasted normally, you know, two to three days on average. The tour officer always had a chance to take a break when we were going from one uh, site to another, target to another. You know, they could shut their eyes where the NCO couldn't do that. Uh so right. you know the NCOs got very, very little sleep because your adrenaline was was just pumping. Even when you pulled into a, a wooded area at night to say, you know, you drove a couple of five, six kilometers with NVGs on, and then you found an area say, Okay, this is where we're gonna get a couple of hours of sleep. It usually wasn't sleep anyway, because you're usually some kind of an OP. You know, you, you were at a rail line and Every time a train went by, you know, you just snapped up and looked. It was kid on the train, and every kind of noise that was outside the vehicle, you know, you were still that six sense was working. So it was, like I said, for the NCO, it was a very demanding uh, job. And again, just like, like the, it was already stated in, in a lot of books, the tour officers did not get on the road as much as the NCOs. The NCOs, we would come back from one mission, uh, maybe three days. We might have a two-day turnaround uh, and be on a schedule for the next mission. So we were prepping with the next tour officer for the next mission, whereas the one that just got off the mission was doing all of his intel work, his post-operative stuff that he had to do with with the intel folks. So the NCOs had probably three times more time on the road than the officers did uh, at the mission. And when were you there, early 80s? No, I was there from 88 through, through the closing. So we actually, the last group, we shut down the mission. Uh, right. We deactivated. We deactivated uh, one day before German unification. Um, pulled the flag down at the Potsdam House, and uh, we had a last kind of, you know, hurrah tour through Potsdam and on the Glenica Bridge. So one day before German unification, we deactivated. So right. I was there during the whole turmoil in East Germany when it started in 1989. The demonstrations against their own regime, and, and then of course the fall of the wall, the opening of the border. So that complicated matters for us quite a bit towards the end because uh, now suddenly you had hundreds of thousands of West Germans driving through East Germany and, you know, with 300,000 Soviets still there. Uh, so it, it made things a little bit more complicated for us towards the end. God, it sounds complicating. Might be interesting Might be interesting for you to, to understand how I got to the mission. Yeah. Uh, I was working as the Border Recon NCO for 11th ACR. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was working on the border between West and East Germany, responsible for about 152 kilometers of the Inner german border. It was just, you know, everybody kind of knew USMLM because obviously you had the uh, Smellum, the SMLM in West Germany. So you kind of knew, you heard about this, this organization. You didn't have any details, but you knew that there was these US guys in East Germany doing that kind of work. Uh, Of course, after the Nicholson shooting, uh, it was in the press a lot, but nobody really had, you know, too much info about them. Colonel Abrams contacted me. He was the the regimental commander at the time. He said, hey, Tom, he goes, "Uh, we've got this briefing coming up. There's an SF major who's the operations officer at uh, USMLM. He's coming up to to Fulda, to the headquarters, to give uh, our officers a USMLM briefing. And he said they're looking for a 19 Delta, a good 19 Delta, because their uh, other 19 Delta is PCSing. And I recommended you. So why don't you come up, go through the briefing, sit in the back. Uh, It was a classified briefing. So I got up there, the back of the room, and I was just totally mind blown. You know, when you get this briefing and you see what the guys are actually doing on the ground, you're like, oh, my God. And first of all, you're thinking this is you can't get more real in, let's say, peacetime Cold War than what these guys are doing. You're behind enemy lines. You are sneaking and peeking. you have no weapons. You have no communications. So, can you take me just quickly through
1: sure. the the Nicholson incident, really quick? It was, in, it was April of nineteen. No, it was March.
2: March nineteen eighty five. Twenty four March nineteen eighty five. Yeah. Major Arthur Nicholson was a tour yeah. officer. He was a very he was a very experienced tour officer. He'd been there quite a while. In fact, I think he, at the time when he was killed, he was the uh, like the planning officer uh for the for the ground tours so he had and he was an intel guy background you know if you read all the all the different you know info that came out about that killing even the official side basically what it boils down to is just a simple overreaction from a young soviet guard you know 20 something years old uh you know the soviets had a strange mentality still do in fact if you look at it i mean the russians but the Soviets had a strange mentality in terms of use of deadly force to them they could use deadly force not only to protect their lives, but also to protect the facilities. So they, protecting a facility had the same amount of, of importance as protecting their own lives. And also the other point is that the Soviets weren't really, troops that were stationed in East Germany, weren't very educated on the missions. Okay, so if you look at in West Germany, you know, all the guys that came to, to West Germany got their head start and all their information and got the smell and card and they were briefed, you know, from the Intel guys, what to do, what not to do, you know, et cetera. The Soviets didn't get the young troops didn't get that information. You know, maybe some did, some didn't, but it wasn't widespread and as accurate as as we did with our troops in the West. So that was a big issue. So, you know, we never knew how these guys were going to react. You know, you'd pull into a training area and there'd be a guy and, and sometimes he just talk to you and, and tell you everything about his unit, you know, the, the commander, the commander's wife, whatever. The next time you'd go in, you know, he'd have an AK and then he'd point it at you. So you never knew how they're going to react. And I think when you look at it, basically, it was just a chain reaction of events that led to his killing. You know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't even an important sight. It wasn't It was a sub-calibre tank range. It wasn't something that was, you know, it was outside of a PRA. It wasn't anything that was inside a restricted area. People had, tours had been there regularly, routinely. There was some sheds there. Uh, It was nothing really important. But this young guard, you know, sees this vehicle come up with U.S. flag on it. Uh, Guys in BDUs. One guy gets out and he's taking pictures with a little camera uh, in the sheds. And he fires a couple of shots. There's no warning shot. He fired a couple of shots and I think the second the second round uh, hit the major and and that's when the the whole then catastrophe started because instead of de-escalating the situation, saying, "Oh shit, okay, I shot this guy. Let's do what we're supposed to do. You know, let let's get some first aid." Probably wouldn't have helped anyway, but they did the typical Soviet thing.
1: Wait for a world from higher.
2: Yeah, and it's your fault. They didn't let the NCO get out of the Jesse shots get out of the vehicle. They, they held him at and then Basically, he didn't know what to do. He panicked. He, he called the Comandatura and, and tried to get in. Two hours later, they show up, you know, Majors laying there, bled to death. And if you read also the autopsy report, I doubt that he would have survived anyway. But the whole concept, you know, that the Soviets had back then. And then again, it was just, OK, we have to now protect ourselves, the Soviets, you know, and they blaming, did everything to blame. Instead of, you know, they could have de-escalated, said, oh, shit, this was a, a terrible mistake and, and apologized from the beginning. But no you know, the typical Soviet uh, actions, and I think it took like a couple of years for them to finally apologize. I guess one of the positive things that came out of it is that they realized that they had a deficit in, in with their troops. Right. And so after the whole commission with with the US MLM folks and the Soviet folks uh, after the shooting, they actually put in things in place to sort of prevent that from ever happening again. In fact, the US uh, even printed uh, smell cards for the Soviets to give to their troops uh, explained how we did things in the West, you know, to try and, and, and help the situation. Did this, did you guys distribute those? They distributed. They distributed those uh, to their troops. But, I mean, if you look a couple of months later, there was also another shooting incident. It was always, think- and I think it just boiled down to overreaction from, you know, young troops that were very poorly motivated, trained to the most, you know, to most part, you know, they were ha- treated very badly by their officers in, in East Germany. We knew that. And I think it was just a terrible accident, well, accident, but a, a terrible incident in the Soviet way of thinking back then, mm-hmm. you know, shoot first, ask questions later. And, and if you look at, it, you know, f- from 1947, when the missions were created till deactivation in 1990, only two USMLA or two mission folks were, were killed, Major Nicholson and the French uh, adjutant-chef Mariotti. And that's already, you know, it's to me it is quite amazing. If you look at the history of how many incidents with rammings and shootings and beatings uh, that only two mission folks were killed in all those years is also, to me, it's it's quite amazing, uh, to be honest. Yeah. Why do you think that was? Why
1: do you think that you said you didn't have weapons, but I think one of the main weapon is your ability to kind of avoid conflict or or avoid situations. I I imagine it would be Knowing the train, having a fast car?
2: Well, I mean, we, we did, obviously had an edge uh, over, a technical edge over the, uh, uh, the Soviets and all the security forces in East Germany that were behind us, whether it was the GRU, the KGB, the Stasi, whatever, POPOs. But I think one of the things, you know, we were always taught risk versus gain, okay? Mm-hmm. So do not take a risk, risk your life. Uh, simply because, you know, you want to get the best intel target and, and information. So it was always balance. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because if you, if you look at some of the stuff we did, you would you know, you would shake your head, you know, and say, hey, to get the best video imagery of uh, of Soviet tank range activity, we would be downrange and filming as they're firing. You know, <laughs> you, would, you know, now when I think about it, I'm going, why? You know, I, I must have been crazy. But that's the kind of stuff that we used to do on a daily basis because, you know, we're trying to get the best intel information, human information that, that you, could, you could get. Uh, but again, it was a good posture we had, at least when I was there, that the NCO decided on the security. So if I thought that something was wrong or that this was not good, I would simply stop and say, hey, we're not doing it. I would say 99% of the times the officer would listen. Uh, Sometimes we might get into some discussions and it depended also on the officer. We had, you know, some that were really HUA, uh, infantry officers that, that, you know, wanted to go hit every target, no sleep, no, don't stop, you know, eat while you're driving between, between your legs and things like that. And other guys, you know, were, Hey, let's take a break, clean up a little bit.
1: Could you describe for me like a typical day that you would have a tour or a typical tour? I think I mentioned something about it. Like I'm just curious about, you know, when you got the assignment? I mean, I think you probably, I mean, you lived in West West Berlin at the time in the American sector.
2: How, how did it work? Well, we had our operational headquarters was in West Berlin. Uh, in fact, it was uh, the former headquarters of General Feldmarschall Keiter, So one of Hitler's, uh, you know, generals, um, and it was built by Albert Speer. So they had a lot of history alone, that building that we were in. That's where our operational headquarters was. So we had our in the basement were all the operational uh, officers, where the tour officers, NCOs, and the intel folks sat, uh, the army intel folks sat. And in the basement, it was also the, the photo lab. We had the motor pool for our vehicles. And then upstairs under the attic was all the alphabet soup uh, folks that worked, okay, uh, and the, the analysts, okay, from the different organizations. That was, that was a – it was a Fodenweg in Berlin. And like I said, it was a beautiful location. Not too far from the PX, 100 meters across the street from the PX area in in a residential area. And like I said, that was the former headquarters of Keidel. His private residence was across the street. He had a tunnel that, that went to it. Uh, and that was our operational building. So we got the, the officer, We got our mission. Sure, we had our own guards, uh, civilian guards. There was a fence around it, wall, everything. And yeah, what was it called? It was just called a USMLM. Everybody knew it because of the big sign on the on the steps and everything. Uh, but it was a secure. I mean, you obviously had also the uh, detachment A that was was in, in Berlin at the time. We got a couple. They of were guys Andrews. In, yeah, yeah. they came from from there. But it was in Fordenweg was the the actual address, and that's where the building was located, Fortinweg, yeah. Okay, in in Dahlem. So you lived out. You lived probably in. So that's what like I said. That's where we prepped. We got the the missions. You know, the missions were. You had a, a planning officer for the ground and air tours, and uh, they gave out the missions, and it was obviously directed based on. Information that they got from from the intel folks, and then we would have our training schedule, so we knew where we we're going. The officer would would plan; he would plan all the the targets. The motor pool guys they would take care of the vehicles. I mean, those guys were great. So the G wagons were set up for us. We knew which one we were taking, which uh, which plated one. They made sure that all the that the passes were in. Everything was was good to go. So you basically knew. Okay, at this time we're leaving. You'd link up with the officer. Every you get your, your your kid in the in the vehicle, and then you'd head out. Uh, and we always crossed over the uh, Glenicore Bridge. That was our crossing, official crossing point. Glenicore Bridge half was for the mission folks, and the other half was for diplomatic folks from controlled by the East German Army. So the border, and then we would cross over the Soviet side. The usual routine: pull up. The Soviets would open the gate. We would hand them the pass. They'd go in, record your your numbers, your pass numbers, your IDs, uh, and then you'd enter into Potsdam. And then we we drive, you know, once we're in Potsdam, you were in territory, and then we would always stop at the uh, mission residence. Okay. So the mission res- residence was a beautiful villa right on the lake outside of Potsdam in Neufahrland. It belonged to a Prussian general who died before World War II. Soviets then took it after the end of the war and then gave it to the Americans when the agreement was signed. The Americans obviously fixed it up first. It was a beautiful residence, but all the staff is provided by the Soviets. They were all East German staff. We knew that they were all working for the Vopo, Stasi, whatever. But they took care of us. We didn't talk any official stuff in the building. We were pretty sure that was probably also bugged stuff. But we'd always stop in at the house before we head out to our targets, whatever zone it was.
1: It just seems funny that you go to, you go to. I mean, you go through this, the Glienicker Kabruka, right? Yep. I mean, it's the bridge of spies, right? It's yep. crossing over, yep. Yep. and you, you know, you're going through a Soviet checkpoint. I mean, they're probably alerting the Stasi, letting them know, okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Whoever, and the Stasi yeah. have their car ready because whoever they're assigned to watch you guys is yeah. probably pulling out and getting ready. But then you go into this house, this past house, where you know it's bugged. You know that everybody there is East German nationals. They're probably informing for yeah. someone. What was a typical conversation like inside that house? I mean, you can't really, hey, how's it going? Boy, look at this. Oh, it's a great day today.
2: Yeah, stuff like that. And, you know, there was the Oma. There was the Oma who worked in the kitchen for years already. She, when, I was, when I was there, I think she was, she was already probably in her late 60s or 70s maybe. Everybody called her Oma. And we just talked normal stuff. You know, where are you from? I mean, they knew that already. So there was nothing wrong. We always had that. There wasn't this sense of
1: betrayal that they're they're trying to get information.
2: You know, let's let's put it this way. Those that have been there a while with us, you know, I mean, they played that double game because we treated them well. They got stuff from us and they knew that they couldn't get that stuff anywhere else. Uh, All the goodies that they got from us. And for them, it was obviously a very big benefit. And so if they fed them, you know, the bosses some information to keep them happy, who cares? Like I said, we didn't talk shop. They knew already you know, that I was from New York City, where I came from, that I was married. I, I recently got a copy of my Stasi records, at least part of them. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. They had all all that stuff on you. So there was, you know, we, we always had that directive, you know, if you're talking to these folks and they ask you about you, you can tell them anything you want. But if they start asking you about someone else, then you stop. So if they ask, you know, hey, what about you? No, no. But if they ask me, you know, where you're from, you're married, you, kid? you know, my wife came to the post house as well when we pulled duty. My kids came to the Potsdam house where we had, you know, um, overnight or, or Fourth of July parties or whatever. So there was nothing that, you know, I was not able to talk about myself.
1: So your Stasi file was just basically biographical information. Was there anything surprising? No, nothing. Su-
2: what interesting, Like and they said that. ah, oh, uh, he it, likes,
1: he likes cigars. He yeah. likes cigars. That's how we'll get them. That kind of stuff, yeah. <laughs> get, cu- get Cubans. Yeah. <laughs> they started showing up but with what, Cuban what cigars. What i be interested
2: it? in is to find out and, and I hope I get to. Go to Berlin and look at the files. Is people that I knew in the West that let's say were friends, German friends in the West. Oh, those yeah. people who were actually working for the Stasi that would interest me. There was so many informal uh, agents for the Stasi. Uh, so that yeah. would interest me to find out if any of these, you know, German buddies of mine were were uh, were actually Stasi agents. So uh, maybe I'll get a look at that one day. <laughs> Then you'd start your tour
1: and you'd hit the road. I mean, did you? At what point did you know you were being followed by the Stasi? And did you take any steps to evade them? Or?
2: Well, they weren't really always behind us. I mean, we could point them out pretty quick. Uh, it was kind of comical, you know. It was like the the Blues Brother brothers. Uh, you know, you'd have a, a better type of vehicle for East German, uh, you know, East German models. You know, there might be a West model or maybe a lot of the East Soviet, Soviet country or whatever Soviet Republic. But, uh, you know, there'd be two guys sitting in there with with leather. Coats on and sunglasses, and, and we're like, you know, <laughs> two antennas on the car. And go, hmm, I wonder who these guys are.
1: Did you get to know them? Like, oh, this or give them nicknames, or did you know?
2: No, I mean, they would. You, they'd always be different folks, and uh, you know, there was a specific uh, group of the Stasi responsible for the missions. Uh, helped up Taeyung, I think it was four that was responsible for the missions. But again, they also used a lot of agents. You know, in, in you know, in official agents. Every time we stopped to get gas, we knew that they would have to report us, you know, because we have to use their gas stations. So we always have, you know, our little in our car, we had a trunk box with all kinds of goodies. And we'd give, you know, the gas station three or four packs of Marlboros or whatever. We knew that he'd have to report us because if he didn't, he'd be in trouble. But he mm-hmm. might wait half an hour until mm. he report us. So that was the kind of way that some who are the, like, the die, hardcore communists probably wouldn't. But the normal East German You know, they hated the Stasi, they hated the Soviets, and they were just trying to do their best as possible to survive. So, you know, you know, guy working at the gas station, the Stasi officer came out, he had no choice because if he didn't do that, he would be in trouble, his family might be in trouble. So he had to play the game, even if he didn't want to, and even if he hated them. But like I said, we give him, you know, a couple packs of cigarettes and whatever, a couple of cokes, and he would certainly wait thirty minutes to report, Oh, yeah, by the way, they were here thirty minutes ago. They did his job, but he also helped us to a certain degree, so it was the, you know, the kind of way we we knew that we could interact with the with the East German uh, folks. Was it part of your mission
1: to avoid surveillance, or did you? Was it just an accepted?
2: If we could avoid it, yeah, but it wasn't always possible. I mean, for us, the army tours, it was a little bit easier because we were always on the move. You know, he had the Air Force guys where they were sitting at, you know, some outside of some airfield. It was a lot more difficult. And that's why they got detained mm-hmm. quite quite a bit more than the Army guys because we were mobile. So we were always on the move from target to target. We were driving through the woods, you know, and NVGs at night and things like that. So, But you could pick them out pretty quickly and we could also ditch them. Pretty quickly, because they simply didn't have, you know, the autobahns at the time in East Germany didn't have any guardrails and things like that, dividers. So, you know, we would simply drive off the autobahn, four wheel drive, go through the woods, and, and that was it.
1: So, I imagine you couldn't just tear off down any old dirt road. I mean,
2: did yes, you? Kind yes, of we did. have certain <laughs> certain road. Really? <laughs> yes, we did. We did. That's why we were, we were pain. Yeah. That's why we were pain to the East German authorities because for us, they didn't have anything to do with us. We didn't recognize them. Uh, We didn't follow any. We we were supposed to follow as best as possible all the the rules of roads or the laws and things like that. But operationally, uh, we obviously broke those laws all the time. It was, it was the way it was. It was
1: so. I'm just curious. I mean, if there were two, only two like allied casualties, were there any casualties of East, of East Germans caused by you know any evasive driving or something like that?
2: I read a couple of – there was a couple of incidents where accidents, where people were hurt, but uh, I don't think – and we also carry a lot of East German money with us, like mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of East German marks. So if we had like a small accident where we just pay them off, they were more than happy to take the money and go. Uh, That's what we do in L.A. too. Yeah. The same thing. <laughs> So, so it was, it was no, no problem. But I, I reading some of the books, I know that there was some, some accidents, but I don't think there was any casual. I know one of the tours ran over, the U.S. tours ran over a Soviet who was hanging on to the hood of the car, and the officer panicked, ran him over. We never really knew if he died. The Soviets said he did, but he was probably hurt, obviously. Uh, but the tour got PNG'd, so Persona Langrada got the credentials taken away from the Soviets. That's the kind of stuff that you didn't want to do. I had a Soviet guard that fell out of a tree on top of the, the hood of the vehicle. Really? Yeah. So I backed up so fast. I think my butt was pulling the springs out of the seat at the same time. And he rolled off the, the hood and he was laughing his butt off. And I was thinking, you little...
1: It wasn't intentional, obviously. It was
2: intentional. Yeah. yeah. It was intentional? He it just jumped? Yeah, we like pulled in, Spider Man. to the side and we had the same procedure. You know, turn off the engine and roll the car so you don't use the brakes. Window down. Listen and look at first. And I was listening looking, and I hear something like a whistle. I was like, what the hell? Who's whistling? And I'm looking around. Look, I, didn't, I didn't look up. I'm looking around, looking around. And, I said, and all of a sudden, he jumps out of the tree right on top of the hood of the car. So <laughs> that's when uh, <laughs> adrenaline and heart attack at the same time is like. So had you done training for like evasive driving? Yes. They would also, they would send us to uh, courses, one in Stuttgart from Mercedes. It was always great driving other people's cars. You know, and it was always the big limousines and all, all kinds of things. And then also one from the SAK, the uh, police, the reaction police in Berlin uh, at Tempelhof on the airfield. So we did uh, do some, but all that that Hollywood stuff, not to you know, I mean the Hollywood stuff. We, yeah, yeah, I don't, don't think they, they would teach us that, especially in uh, in Stuttgart. But we didn't use it because it was it was simply you didn't do that emergency brake one eighty. We trained on that, but we didn't use it in in the operational because I mean it was it was a lot. Quicker, and especially in the places we were on trails, tank trails, and things like that. So it was a lot just quicker backing up, turning around, and, and heading out. Yeah. I mean, it was nice going through the courses, uh, learning how to do stuff, also learning why the car reacts that way. You know, the the whole thing behind it was good in wet snow and, and stuff like that. I got into an accident uh, one of my first tours. I think it was a training tour, in fact, uh, on Rugen Island, so the furthest point you can get away from from Berlin. Early in the morning, we were coming back from the OP. The sun was just coming up. I think it was like 6 o'clock in the morning, and we are coming down this road. It was icy, Soviet truck coming from the other side, and I basically didn't do the right thing. Instead of just kind of slowing down, I hit the brakes, and then the car just lost it, and we rolled the, the, the G-Wagon probably three times, took out a couple of trees, didn't even break a window on the G-Wagon, not, not a mirror, nothing. Those things are built really like tanks, but we ended up on our side we couldn't get back up. So uh, finally an East German came by with a truck and helped us back up. But yeah, I mean, those, those are the things that happened. We had a lot of those kind of accidents. You sure rammings, you know, getting rammed, you never knew how they're going to react driving by a column of a hundred uh, trucks. And maybe the, the 50th truck, the driver just goes, you know, you know, with a Ural 375 and you've got no chance. So you, you know, you have to kind of always keep that in mind, uh, how they react. And also if you were on a tank trail, they always had the advantage you know wheeled vehicles like a bdr 70 60 uh, 70 80 bmp's any kind of track we had an advantage over us on the tank trail so if we, we got into a chasing you know if they, if they started chasing us on the tank trail we always tried to get out as quickly as possible and get to a hardball because then we had the advantage again you're chased by a bm chased, yes, by, a chased BMP? by by a beater 80 out of a we were in a training area those are the ones with the big they're the ones with the big wheels right yes the big wheels exactly you know the full axle with a small turret and a cannon and we were at a 88 uh, air defense site and again we were pulled up they were you saw it was a typical air defense unit you know, that BMPs they had uh, i think it was sa 8s there was SA13s beater 80s BMPs and stuff like that and they reacted quickly so a BMP and a BTR started up so we just hauled out of the area and I'm driving and the officers filming from the back, back of the window, but I'm like, you know, the tank trail bouncing up and down. And I knew the only, the only way I could avoid getting detained was to get back to a hard road. And there was, I remember there was a small bridge and I hit the brakes slid, got onto that bridge and then beater 80 tried to do the same thing. But obviously, you know, he weighed a couple of tons more than, than we did. He just slid, kept sliding, but then he didn't follow us. So we got onto the, the road and, and head out. But those are, Typical things that that would happen quite often when you were in a training area.
1: Have you driven back to any of those places as a civilian, like maybe on like on a family trip?
2: Well, actually, you know, when I go to the former East Germany, you know, and even for the for the Nicholson Memorial, you know, I drive to a lot of the areas and I go, oh, man, you know, hey, this is, you know, obviously you don't recognize him anymore. Everything's changed so much. Some of the big training areas like Letzig and that was one of the major Soviet and East German training areas. It's now used by the Bundeswehr. It's still there, but that was obviously, you know, a PRA side. We would always hit the rail heads when they were coming in and out of the training area. It's always funny when I drive, and you know, I drive through a lot of villages and I say, and I still remember, you know, hey, that's, you know, this was there. and this. So it's uh, even, you know, 25 years later. That's
1: what, were there any places that you weren't able to see like any, what were they called, PREs?
2: PRAs. One good example, there was a PRA was uh, around Furstenwalde, which is east of Berlin. And used to be one that was the uh, Soviet SS All right. We didn't know we didn't know until in fact left. I think even most of the East Germans that lived there didn't know they were there until they left. That was a permanent restricted area. Uh, and then it was also a, a high speed East German Air Force radar, underground radar facility bunker where they would track the NATO aircraft in West Germany and et cetera. Uh, So that was a PRA. And I have a good friend that lives there in Fürstenwalde. So, you know, the opening of the border and then unification of Germany, I've been going back there and just amazing to see how the whole place changed. I mean, if you can imagine back then, East Germany was gray, no color, stunk, everything was broken. You know, there'd been... uh, hardly any bridges. It was just, I mean, it was a bankrupt country where the people just, and that's why I have a lot of respect for the East German, the normal East German citizen, because they had to, basically with nothing, try to to, to make something. And And if you look at it now, I mean, it's just amazing, you know, what they've, done you know germany as a whole in the in 25 years 25 years it's just amazing uh you know everything's now new color in fact it's even if you look at the Audubons and and a lot of the infrastructure in in the eastern part of germany is better than now what's in west germany because it's all new
1: yeah similar to berlin too
2: yeah Yeah. so it's, it's just amazing uh it's amazing
1: So the only parts I would really see was driving up and down the corridor through Magdeburg. Yeah, and I was wondering, did you have any tours in that area?
2: Oh yeah, I mean there was. In fact, one of the people don't understand realize is that we as USMOM we could use any Soviet checkpoint, not only the the Glunica Bridge uh, to cross, but we could use Checkpoint Alpha, Checkpoint Bravo, Checkpoint Charlie wasn't our thing. Checkpoint Charlie, so East Berlin was not for the USMOM, but we could. So a lot of times when we were close to the border with West Germany. Uh, and it was always it was, it was great. The whole border area was a PRA. So, so many kilometers onto the border, I think five or six, if you look at the PRA map, it was all PRA because the East Germans wanted that, obviously, to be a, a PRA. But we could cross. So, a lot of times we'd, like, be in, in, in the vicinity of Checkpoint Alpha, and the tourists said, hey, want to cross over and go get something to eat in West Germany? Yeah, oh, sure. So, you know, we would drive up. You know, the Soviets knew us. But then, you know, we'd always have to, as a courtesy, we'd go into the um, MP guys uh, and say, hey, look, we're here. It was always a great to see the faces, you know, the look on their faces. You know, we'd pull up, mud all over the vehicle, unshaven, dirty, stinking. Hey, just want to let you know we're here and uh, we're just going to go get something to eat in town and we're going to head back over. you <laughs> be like, OK.
1: But you had to go back through the Soviet so so, so, checkpoint yeah. on, your way, on your way back.
2: Yeah, So like I said, we, we just, as a courtesy, let the MPs know, you know, because obviously everything was being filmed. So they'd see, you know, our vehicle coming through with American, but I mean, they knew who we were. Yeah, who are you guys?
1: But you couldn't tell people what you did.
2: Even even my my fan, like my wife, you know. I mean, obviously, wives, mission wives, were a pretty close group. My wife was was German, so a few other German wives as well couldn't talk detail. They knew we were working in East Germany, but I didn't come back and say, "Hey, honey," especially some of the classified stuff that we did. Sometimes you could just tell, look, you know, see, look at my face and see that I had a, a rough couple of days.
1: Anything you remember most vividly from the tours? Like any, maybe the most dangerous or the most kind of
2: unusual thing that happened? You know, I, I always said once when I retrospectively, when I think about it, you know, like, I must have been crazy for doing that kind of stuff. Any any incident was always you never knew how they were going to react. And any time a Soviet would point a weapon at you. And that happened. It, it had happened a few times where where that happened. And you just tried to de-escalate, uh, keep things calm, not overreact and take a detention if it meant taking detention. I mean, a personally never got detained, but we always said, hey, there's nothing dishonorable about getting, you know, getting detained. If you get detained, you get detained. That's the way it is. And usually it ended up where you'd block for a couple of hours, maybe the commandant would come and then he'd discuss with the officer and he wanted the officer to sign an act saying, yes, we were spying and he wouldn't sign it. He refused it. And then they'd maybe escort Alice to the company, go and drink a vodka together. And then that was it. There was, there was nothing wrong about getting detained. If, if you got detained, you got detained, you know, I mean, better getting detained than getting shot at, you know? <laughs> yeah. Any times when your German came in handy? Oh, yes. I mean, the German came in handy quite a bit because, like I said, the officer was was a Russian speaker. Some of them actually spoke German as well. We had some, some that were pretty good with languages, but most of them just uh, the Russian. We had to also try and maintain the context with the East Germans, okay. even though we knew that one out of 10 were unofficial agents for the Stasi, but that's where we were also there to show the flag. Uh, and it was important mm-hmm. though, because they would you know, they were indoctrinated in the schools the kids not to go up to our vehicles. Uh, uh, We would kidnap them. We would give them poison candy. They didn't believe that. You know, the kids, kids were kids everywhere. They'd come up to us and, you know, talk to us and and we'd give them candy and we'd give them Cokes and things. So that, it also helped show them and reinforce the way the Americans were and and what we were doing. And they knew we weren't the bad guys. And And I just give a perfect example. On 9 November, when the wall opened, the borders opened up, On 9 November, so on 8 November, most East Germans were, you know, concerned or reluctant to talk to us because they knew that the next buddy might report to the Stasi that this guy talked to us. VOPOs hated us. They were not our friends. The East German border troops hated us. They were not our friends. On 10 November, we crossed over. On 9 November, we're all out. On 10 November, we went out again. And now the border troops were waving at us, were telling us where the Soviets were, the Vopos were waving at us, telling us, hey, a column of Soviets went that way. People were coming up to us on the street, hugging us. I remember there was an old woman. She was probably in her 70s, 80s. She says, don't leave us now. Protect us. And, and you know, God bless. I mean, it was just like from one day to the next. The Stasi disappeared. On 10 November, we did not see the Stasi ever again. It was like somebody hit a switch. And they yeah. knew they knew it was over. You know,
1: Have you met any ex-Stasi since then?
2: Yes. In fact, it was funny, really funny as hell. I have contacts with the French Foreign Legion in in Forbach, across the border here in France. And I go to a lot of the reunions and things like that, functions. One day, we're sitting there, and one of the guys sees my USMLM tattoo on my arm uh, here. yeah, And he goes to me, hey, you were at the mission, USMLM? I said, yeah, he was speaking to me in German. And uh, he goes, I was a Stasi officer back then, responsible for for you guys. <laughs> And after really? the, and after the fall of wall and, and he went to join the French for, he was in the French Foreign Legion, I think for like 14, 15 years. I mean, that was his job back then. But he was still proud yeah. of the fact that he was a Stasi officer, still proud of the fact of his why why should I I mean that was his job. So now here we are, you know, talking about, you know, it's it's great. I think it's it's uh
1: Wow. Did you keep in touch with him? You guys Facebook uh, friends now? Yes,
2: or? we're on WhatsApp. He he moved back to uh to the eastern part of Germany. Uh haven't heard from him in a while, but every now and then he he sends me a, a message. Oh, that's interesting. Fifteen years in the French Foreign Legion, though, that would that, harden a man.
1: Yeah, uh, he was a, he was a hard guy. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of wrap up, I want to talk about how you've gotten—I mean, so many other countries—to participate in these memorial events uh, for Mariotti
2: and Nicholson. And uh, the memorial site was dedicated in 2004, and it was actually a, a German organization that allied museum curator who started that up in, in Berlin.
1: Bant from Kuska.
2: But then i have been there a couple, I'd been up there a couple of times and seen how the grounds looked. I, I told you the stone had been uh, faced and, and vandalized. I said, you know, I'm going to try, I'm going to look up which organization is up there near Teschentine. And I simply found mm-hmm. it, wrote them, said, hey guys, this is this who I am. This was what, they jumped all over. They were so excited to support and said, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is something that we shouldn't forget. We should, this is in Germany, it's part of our history as well. We shouldn't forget this. And they ran with the ball; it was amazing. What's the, organi- what's the organization called? That's the uh, German Reservists Command of. So Mecklenburg-Vorpommern is the German area where Teschentin, where that, where that uh, is located. So these were East German veterans. Some of them are. Some of them, you know, the younger guys were born even when it was still East Germany, but a lot of the older guys were in, in the East German army. They're going to hold it, lay a wreath down, and that's what I want. You know, the dog and pony stuff, I don't need that. I just want to make sure that Nicholson, you know, his sacrifice is not forgotten, uh, that the, the Germans realize, you know, what is this thing and why is it there and, and what happened? Uh, and that's the only thing that I want to accomplish. And that's, you know, we do it among Monk comrades uh, with the association back then, General Ryan, where maybe 10, 15 guys that you're, I mean, you remember the first year when you were there, the official sermon laid the wreath down and they drive back to, to wherever they came from.
1: Thank you to Tom Favia and also to Stephen Hoyt, uh, both of the United States military mission, for your service and for being on the live drop. Uh, there's more information about USMLM in the show notes. End of transmission.